listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture this morning comes from the first chapter in the Gospel of John. If you'd like to follow along, it's in your pew Bible on page 862. However, I'm going to be reading just a slightly different version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Amen. Good morning again, everybody. So we're starting a new sermon series this morning. We really started it last week. Uh, with Easter and our talk about the resurrection and new creation. So if you weren't here last week, you might want to jump on our website and check that out, see what you missed. But in our worship time for the next uh, few weeks, in the wake of Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus, I want to talk about hope. What is it we hope for as Christians? What's the hope at the center of our faith? And how does that hope shape our lives here in the present? It feels like an appropriate topic. I suspect that some of us might have a hard time putting our finger on that hope. We might say something about like going to heaven when we die, although we'd be a little hard-pressed about what it is we'll be doing once we get there. Eternity is an awful long time to kill. We might say something about eternal life, or living forever with God, going to a place where there's no more suffering, all really good stuff. But that's all out there somewhere. That feels really far away, very future. It's hard sometimes to connect that hope with our lives here in the present. My suspicion is that some of us might be operating with an anemic hope. A hope that's somewhat vague, abstract, centered entirely in the future, and in desperate need of being fleshed out here in the present. That's what I'm hoping we can start to do with this series. We're going to be talking about some big theological ideas together over the next couple weeks. Some ideas that are central to the Christian faith, but I I think a lot of us either have forgotten or just never learned. And my hope is that some of these ideas will help to thicken up our hope, connect things like heaven and eternal life to our lives right here in the present. And the big idea I want to talk about this morning is incarnation. Right up front, though, I have to make a distinction. We're talking about incarnation, not reincarnation. It's a very important distinction. Uh, Reincarnation, right, is an idea found in some Eastern faiths like Hinduism um, that we live multiple lives, that after you die, you come back in another form. That's reincarnation. 
We're talking about something very different. We're talking about incarnation, which is the idea that in Jesus, God becomes a human being. God takes on flesh and enters fully into our world, into our human existence in order to redeem it. I emphasize this distinction because it's something that happened to me a few years back when I was a professor. Um, This one time I gave this 90-minute lecture on incarnation. We're talking about the incarnation of God in Christ. We're going through passages like John 1, which Jim just read for us, talking about how God was fully present in Jesus. And then after the lecture, this really angry student came up to me and informed me that he would be dropping my class because he didn't go to seminary to learn about reincarnation. And I I was like, dude, what lecture have you been setting through for the last 90 minutes? I didn't say a word about reincarnation or anything like that, but this guy heard incarnation. He thought reincarnation, and then he turned his brain off until he could come tell me what a heretic I was. It was fun. Ever since then, I make the distinction. We're talking incarnation. Got it? Good. I don't want anyone coming up to me telling me they're going to drop my class after this. Let's get into our passage for today. It's John 1. It's a classic incarnational text. We touched on John 1 a little bit last week, but today we're going to see just how deep this rabbit hole goes. I'm going to read from John 1, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and that life was the light for all people. Honesty time. How many folks are a little confused by that? Anyone get a little lost in all that stuff about the Word, and the Word was with God, and it was God, and things were created through the Word, and without the Word, nothing was created? Yeah. It's a little confusing. The language there is a little hard to follow, notoriously so. John 1 is, is really tough, especially if you haven't studied John's gospel in, in, uh, in depth. The translation we have on our screens, which is the same one I had Jim read for us, is from the Common English Bible, and I really like this translation because it captures something we often miss about John 1. This is a poem. We're reading poetry. Like any good poem, John is writing this introduction with very fancy language. Beauty is important here. Even making it intentionally hard to follow, like any good poem, right? But a little background information on what all this word stuff is talking about might be a little bit helpful. The word John is referring to is the Greek word logos. Let me hear you all say logos. Very good. Some people pronounce it logos. I like logos. Logos is where we get the word logic. Um, It also shows up in the language we use for the sciences. I've got a bunch of words here. Look at the ends of all these words and tell me if you notice a pattern. Biology, archaeology, sociology. That ending there, that L-O-G-Y, that is basically the English version of the Greek idea of logos. Logos literally means word, but it also has the connotation of of knowledge, logic, wisdom, ideas about things. 
And the word John is referring to is this very important concept in ancient Greek culture. The Greeks believed in many gods, right? How many people here had like Greek mythology in school? Some familiarity, good. You had Ares, you had Zeus, you had Apollo, all these gods that had their own specialized and very specific realms of power. Ares was the god of war. Zeus was the god of like throwing lightning bolts or something like that, right? <laughs> I did not take mythology. Um, but they all had very, very specific and very narrow realms in which these gods operated. None of the Greek gods could really be considered the underlying power of the universe. So if the gods aren't the ultimate power of the universe, then what is? The Greeks would have said the word, logos. Logic for them was the ultimate power of the universe. Logos is what makes up, up, and down, down. Logos is why triangles have three sides. It's why two plus two equals four. It's the difference between left and right. Logos, the word, logic. That's what put the gods on Mount Olympus to begin with. We following this so far? Okay, good. Greek philosophy gets a little abstract. I gotta make sure you're still with me. The word John is referring to is a very ancient way to talk about the ultimate power of the universe, the thing that holds everything else together. Let's read John 1 one more time. See if it helps. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word. And without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. Does that make a bit more sense now? I see nodding. That's good. Yeah. It's helpful to know what John is actually talking about, this idea of the Word which he is connecting with Christ. Now, in this poem, <clears throat> John makes two really revolutionary moves. The first is he basically says to his audience, you know that, that ultimate power of the universe you're always talking about? That thing that's higher even than your gods? Yeah, we just call that God. That's the first move, which we could probably preach a whole sermon series on that, right? Like, we could, I could probably riff on that for a few weeks. But it's the second revolutionary idea John brings in here that I really want to focus on today. But first, there's one other thing you have to know about the word, about logos. It has an opposite. There is another reality in the universe that the Greeks viewed as the polar opposite of logos, a yin to the word's yang, if you will. That reality was called sarks. Let me hear you all say sarks. Sarks. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Sarks. It's got an X in it. Sarks is where we get the word sarcophagus, sarcophagus, right, which is like a box for dead stuff. If logos is life, sarks is death. If logos is pure, perfect, ideal, unchanging, then sarks is broken, dirty, wasting away. If Lagos is eternal, 
Sarks is temporary. You don't combine the two. You would never bring together Lagos and Sarks. They are not compatible. And the literal translation of Sarks is flesh. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Now there is a revolutionary idea. There's an idea that could turn the world on its head. In John's day, the very thought of word becoming flesh, Lagos intermingling with Sarks, that would have been offensive. Like in the wrong circles, that could have gotten you beat up to suggest something like that. You see, for a Greek audience, Lagos is where it's at. The realm of ideas, reason, the immaterial, that's where the action is. That's where true religion, true spirituality lies, with Lagos. But this world, this physical, fleshly existence of ours, well, that's flesh. That's passing away. That's the least spiritual thing you could think of. It's the furthest from Lagos you could possibly get. You see, the goal in Greek religion, which was the predominant religion of the day, the hope of the Greeks was to escape, was to break free of this messy, dirty, earthly life and go somewhere else. A home in the clouds where we can all be ghosts together, where we can float around, play harps, and debate philosophy for all eternity. Right? That's, that, was, that was a gag. That was what that was. I know vomit humor is the way to go here. That's, that's a callback to Jonah. Yeah. <clears throat> John's contrasting this very otherworldly view of salvation from Greek religion with the concept of incarnation. God is not some abstract idea that calls us away from this material reality. God is a person. God takes on flesh and blood in Christ and enters into this reality in order to redeem it. That is the incarnation. God saves us not by calling us to escape the material world, but by bringing the material world to God's self in Christ. Look at the resurrection as an example. We just talked about this last week. It was Easter. If the resurrection is our ideal, if that's the preview we get of our future hope, that looks pretty different from the hope at the heart of most religion. Jesus doesn't come back as a ghost, right? He doesn't, like, achieve enlightenment and then leave behind this material reality. Jesus comes back in a body. He's flesh and blood. He eats, he laughs, he hugs, he has scars. All of it is resurrected. All of it is redeemed. Even the painful stuff. If resurrection is what it's all about, if Christ is the beginning of something, if the raising of Jesus from the dead is the first step in God's mission to make all things new, then our hope should be activated here in the present. Our faith should drive us to engage this world, not escape it. Because you don't get resurrection without incarnation. 
Resurrection and, and incarnation are like two sides of the same coin. Jesus takes on flesh and then raises that flesh to new life. God enters into the world and then redeems it. It's a two-step process. Step one, enter in. Step two, redeem. Incarnation and resurrection. You can't have one without the other. I suspect that some of us have a hope that would be more at home in ancient Greek religion than in the incarnational way of Jesus. We want God to get us out of here when the goal should actually be to bring God here. Just look at the language Jesus uses with his disciples. It's very eye-opening. He tells them that the kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. That's incarnational language. Wherever two or three are gathered, I am with them. When you pray, ask for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the word of God, the logos made flesh. And he uses incarnational language with his disciples because he wants them to continue the work of incarnation. The church, you, me, all of us, we are called to be the very presence of God in creation. That sounds radical, but that is all over the New Testament. In 1 Peter, Christians are called living stones in the temple of God, a kingdom of priests sent to sanctify the world. Paul calls us ambassadors of reconciliation, living temples of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. These aren't just metaphors. They're a call to action. Jesus enters into creation bringing God's present to bear on our present reality, and we are called to do likewise. <clears throat> So let me ask, where does your hope direct you? Does your hope call you out of this world, or does it drive you to engage? Are we just waiting around for death? Are we just waiting for God to rescue us from this place? Is that our hope? Or is our hope centered on manifesting the love and presence of God right here and now? What I see happening in a lot of churches is the work of the church gets split into like two uh, spheres. You've got the real work, right, of like preaching the gospel, saving souls, winning converts, getting people to mentally assent to the beliefs of Christianity. That's like the real work. And then there's the secondary work, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, working for justice. We'll get to that stuff maybe if we have time. The assumption is that it's the preaching work the abstract work, the logos work that counts. All that other stuff, that's flesh. That's icing on the cake. We'll do that if we can. The way we talk about the work of the church oftentimes is upholding that old Greek distinction between logos and sarx, the word and flesh. 
But the incarnation is about erasing that distinction. Bringing those two realms together in the power of the resurrection. There is no divide between the believing work and the earthly work. It's all gospel. You cannot have one without the other. When you share with a friend about the hope you found in Christ, how God invites all of us to follow Jesus, that's gospel. When you give a meal to someone who's hungry or pay the bills for a neighbor who is down on their luck, that's gospel. When you forgive someone or when you advocate for justice, when you put your gifts to work here in the church serving others, when we do things like the gathering table and the teen closet, that's not just charity. That is manifesting the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's incarnational work. That's resurrection work. And it's all gospel. So what do we hope for? We've been looking at these opening lines of John's gospel this morning. But at the end of his life, John was given a vision of the Christian hope. John got a sneak peek of the future toward which God is calling the world. And it's pretty eye-opening, actually. It's not a vision of people floating around on clouds somewhere else. It's not a vision of escaping earth to live in heaven. It's a vision of heaven coming here. I'm going to read from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, starting at verse 1. That'll be on your screens. These are John's words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The realm separating heaven and earth was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, behold, I am making all things new. That is our hope. That's the hope Jesus began with his life, death, and resurrection. And our mission as an incarnational people is to go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the immensity of your compassion and your love for this world. Give flesh to our hope, Lord. Take our meager, anemic, otherworldly hope and thicken it with a hearty dose of your mission to redeem this world. 
Make us into an incarnational people, God. Help us to proclaim your message and manifest your presence out there beyond the walls of this church. We ask these things in the powerful name of Christ, the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us in order to redeem us. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.